Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along There are stations all over the USA carrying this program, but only two locales where two stations carry our show. And one of those cities is Madison, Wisconsin, where you can hear us on both WIDE and WMUU. Greetings to those folks, and a mention that today's Spirit in Action guest is one of your Madison neighbors, since I like to feature relevant local guests whenever possible. Catherine Van Warmer, professor of social work, is the author of The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South. We're told that if we don't learn from history, like the Jim Crow era, we're destined to repeat it, which is probably why we now have what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. Catherine and her two co-authors spoke to a number of women who were maids in the age of segregation, and also to white women who had maids, in order to understand the structures and dynamics surrounding black maids. Catherine Van Wormer joins us by phone from her home in Madison for the weekend. Catherine, thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for having me. You've been working in the field a long time, but I have the sense that the made narratives comes out of a very personal place for you. You want to explain your connection to the made narratives? Well, I grew up in New Orleans, and it was in the days of segregation, the Jim Crow era, the 1950s, and I was very familiar with black people because they were domestic servants, and they worked all along the streets where I lived, on State Street. Later, I was in the Civil Rights Movement, and it always haunted me, their relationships between the blacks and the whites and the treatment that they received. And then I got an opportunity years later in the 1990s. That's when I moved to Iowa, and I was teaching at the University of Northern Iowa, and I heard about these black people who had come up to Waterloo, Iowa, And they had come from Mississippi, and they were part of the Great Migration. I got to thinking, I bet those women had worked as maids in the South, and I would love to get their interviews and hear their kind of side of the story, what it was like for them. But I had to have a co-author because I wanted to have an African-American to do the interviews. And that got us in years and years and years past before I could find one, and then I got two people who were pleased to do the interviews. And so those co-authors are Charlotta Suddeth and David Walter Jackson, both of them African-American. 
And so since the book is divided into two parts, the interviews with African-Americans themselves and the interviews with the whites, the people who had maids or domestic help and various other names that are used for that position, you did all of the interviews with the whites. Is that true? That's right. Did you actually start trying to do any of the interviews yourself and find that having African-American doing those interviews would be more important? No, I didn't, and that's why I had to wait so long. See, I was inspired by the slave narratives, and they were done under the Franklin Roosevelt administration to get jobs for people. And what kind of jobs could they get for writers and journalists? So it was decided that they could interview people who had worked as, I mean, they had been enslaved. And they were, you know, 90 to 100 years old, some of these people. And they interviewed them, but they were largely white people interviewing black people. And when they came out, in some cases, with positive stories about the masters they worked for, it was criticized and it was said, well, they were only talking to white people. And therefore... They were being more positive than they would have been. And so I knew if I did the interviews and it would be about relationships, I was very interested in relationships between the white woman of the house and the black servant because I knew a lot of times they got very close to each other. There was a lot of affection between them. And I wanted to see if that would be true, but it had to be believable. And so I knew that African-Americans had to be the ones to do the interviews with the black people. What was your objective in doing this, these interviews and, and then producing this book, The Made Narratives? Well, at first we started out with an article, but it, it was when I read, not only read, I mean I transcribed the tape and looked back on it and I thought this would be a book, you know, this would be fabulous. Because the story, uh, I mean, it was tear-jerking, it was exciting, scary in parts. I thought, we have a book here. So that started the whole process of working it by chapters. I had not thought at the time of any white interviews. It was all going to be African-Americans. But somebody said along the way, why don't you get the employers of these people? And I said, well, we can never find them. They're mostly dead now. There's no way we could trace them back. But then I thought, oh, but we could find white people who were brought up by maids in their families, working in their families, and we could interview them. And I began to think, now, that would be very interesting to see how do they explain it, you know, how do they explain their role in this unjust society and unjust system. So that got to be interesting, too. Is there anything that came out as part of these interviews that seemed a surprise to you, Catherine? Oh, yes, there were surprises. Some things didn't surprise me because I knew them already, and they surprised other people. Charletta was very surprised when the second interviewee told her, and this was going back to the 1920s, that when a white woman had a baby, if she could not nurse the baby, that her husband would go into the black community and find a black woman who had had a baby, and then they would hire her to be a wet nurse to the white baby. And I could hear on the tape, Charlotta, who was doing the interview, she said, what? (laughs) She was just (laughs) absolutely beside herself. But I had heard stories like that going way back in my family. My mother told me that she had heard that, you know, one of her older relatives had been 
wet nurse by a black woman, so I wasn't that surprised. But Charletta, who grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, she had never heard of such a thing. So I could hear that on the tape. But there were lots of surprises. One of them was this same woman, this is Annie Victoria Johnson, who was really the most interesting, the most articulate, the best narrator and storyteller, and she was the least educated of all the people we interviewed. And she told about quilting. She did quilting, and the white women did quilting. And she said they would go to the white woman's house, and they'd quilt all together, and then they'd take turns, and they'd go to the black woman's house, and the whites would come there, and they would sit there all quilting together. Charletta asked, um, she said, what? <laughs> the white women and the black women sitting there together? She said, what did you talk about? And she said, oh, we said things like, now I have extra beans and you have extra carrots. We'll get you some of those beans in exchange for the carrots. And that kind of conversation. And when people read that, uh, especially people in the north, they're just flabbergasted by that. You know, they're all sitting there together around in a circle, whites and blacks, as equals for that moment, quilting. A big surprise to me, I'm a big fan of William Faulkner. He's my favorite novelist, and I think he's the greatest writer there ever was. And when I was talking to Charlotta, she said, oh, by the way, my aunt, this is her great aunt, worked in the home of William Faulkner in Oxford, Mississippi. I just couldn't believe my ears. I said, you have to get an interview with her. Well, she was in a nursing home. I think she had dementia. But Charlotta still did get a rather brief interview with her. I keep saying, please go back and get more. I wanted to hear about the alcoholism and, you know, the personal things about William Parker. But really, she talked about the food and the house. One thing that we should probably do, Catherine, is to put this into historical context. Again, folks, the book, The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South. So Jim Crow is a period that we believe has ended some time ago. Now, I mean, maybe it ended not too long after you migrated north, for that matter. But there's a period of slavery, and post-slavery, Jim Crow does not start right away. I think Jim Crow is a little bit later. Could you map out that history for those who are a little bit fuzzy about that? Exactly, right. Well, after the Civil War, and remember, of course, the house servants, for example, they were taking care of all their health care needs because the owners were going to make sure they continued working. So then we got into a period after the Civil War, and everybody was miserable. I mean, the poverty was unbelievable. The whites, the landowners, the slave owners, and more than anybody else, the former slaves uh, were in a terrible position. They were wandering around the country. But the North came in. uh, They had the Freedmen's Bureau helping them, and they put them in political office. So there were African Americans there, especially in my home state of Louisiana. They were right there in the government because the other people had been traitors, of course, to the nation, and they weren't allowed to vote immediately. Well, that time passed, and it really ended. The Reconstruction era ended. And it was in the 1890s that Jim Crow, uh, named after a dance they had, that the whites had when they dressed up in blackface and really made fun of black people, and that was called, they were called Jim Crow. And then there was a depression, and because of the economic situation, there was displaced aggression onto black people, 
and they set up these barriers for them, and they had segregation. So any place they sat on the train, they had to be in a different place from white people. If there was drinking water, it had to be separate uh, for what we called colored and white. So when I grew up by the 1950s, you would see double everything, the restrooms, everything. You'd see one sign would be colored, one sign would be maybe white ladies and one white men, and then there would just be one for black people saying colored. The streetcars had a, a little wooden piece that you could move around from seat to seat, and the black people had to sit behind it, and it said colored. But New Orleans was not terribly strict about that. And I remember my aunt had lived in St. Louis, and she came back down. She was pregnant. She sat in the back as soon as the seat was open. I was shocked because here was a white person sitting behind the sign that said colored. And it's interesting because she's a Republican, you know, and I thought, oh, well, she's been living up north, and she doesn't know all the rules down here. But that's the way it was. New Orleans, though, integrated the streetcars early. It was sometime, I think, in the late 1950s. It was before the Civil Rights Act. And the mayor just announced that we weren't going to have that anymore. They took them out. And there was no fuss or anything. But when you go down to St. Bernard Parish, on a bus down there, they would stop the bus and make people get up, get out of their seats, and make sure that the black people were always in the back and the whites were always in the front. You know, my impression was, I think I read this somewhere, of course, I've never actually been to New Orleans, but my sense was that New Orleans was kind of a special haven, even in the times of slavery. There were actually freedmen, as I think they were called, in New Orleans during slavery and maybe throughout the South. Is that true? That's absolutely right. Louisiana had the French tradition, and the free blacks, they helped build New Orleans, and I heard that when the Irish people moved there, when they came in from Ireland, that they weren't favored in the jobs because they had the blacks. And the black people were, a lot of them were part white. They were much fairer complected than the ones that came from Mississippi, for example. We had Creoles who were descended from the French people. And the women had been mistresses to some very prominent French people. General Beauregard was one of them, and he had black mistresses, and they were really well treated. And they went to the Mardi Gras balls, and they were like belle of the ball. And they ended up married, later their children would marry white people. And so you, you have that history there. And some of them went over, passed as white, some of the descendants, and then others of them were black. And they became a middle class in New Orleans, and they had doctors, and two colleges there that are very fine universities. They have Xavier and Dillard, and Xavier is the one that sends so many graduates to medical school. Anyway, New Orleans was unique, and if you read the book Black Like Me, he starts out in New Orleans. as You know, he had his skin dyed (laughs) black, a white man, to find out what it was really like. This was maybe 1960. And this book was a turning point to me and a number of other people who read that book because none of us really knew what it was like being a black man in the South. And then he didn't know until he posed as a black man. And when he went to Mississippi, it was really scary, his experiences there. 
and it made New Orleans look, you know, a lot different than the rest of the South. So, again, the historical map, we've got slavery. After slavery, there's this period that's normally called Reconstruction. And then at the end of Reconstruction, you get into the Jim Crow South, you get into segregation. How long did that stretch? Well, it was 1964, overnight, overnight it was gone when the Civil Rights Act was passed. It was really exciting, you know. It was the law, people in the real estate field and all the businesses. A lot of people, well, they were embarrassed to death about the publicity with those fire hoses and all that was on TV all the time, CBS, NBC News. Every night the country was seeing you know, what terrible people <laughs> these redneck whites were in the South. And people in business, you know, they really didn't like it just from a practical standpoint. The conservatives, like my grandfather, he would have said, well, it's the law. It's the law. He was a segregationist, but he and others like him said, it's the law now. We have integration now, and that's that. So it changed. The motels that had been segregated in Chapel Hill, where I was, you know, the next day, they weren't segregated anymore. Not overnight. It was. It really was. I mean, the attitudes didn't change that fast, but it kind of gave them an out. What they wanted to do and maybe they couldn't do, people who are in business, they would say, this is the law now. Now, they had problems. You know, people went down to register people to vote. And I was scared to death. I, I, I'm, I'm not going down there. They're going to kill the white people going down there. You know, so uh, in Mississippi, I'm really talking about Chapel Hill, North Carolina, my experience there, and New Orleans. There was a lot of resistance there. But they did register black people to vote, and lots of students were going down from the north to the south. And religious people were going down there. So I'm going to get back to the made narrative shortly, but I want to follow your path a little bit further. You graduated high school in the early 1960s. You're from New Orleans, and you've migrated at a certain point over to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's in some ways less south, but maybe it's more south. I mean, you've moved eastward, of course, but is the attitude real deep south in Chapel Hill? Well, Chapel Hill was, when I was there, they called it the hotbed of communism. And I thought that was a real joke because it seemed really conservative to me. But, of course, we had all these people from out of state. And in the civil rights movement there, our goal was to be the most integrated town in the South. Well, in the rural area, there was a whole lot of prejudice against black people. And in Greensboro, too, another city, I had an aunt who lived there. She was a segregationist, and she picked up the attitudes of the white people there. So I'd say it was very Southern. The accents were much more Southern than our accents in New Orleans, and that surprised me. I thought, well, we're going so far north, driving up there, and then the accents of people seemed more Southern than they did, actually, where I was from. The ones who were arrested, they were put in jail, and then they had a trial. And they had to go to Hillsboro, which was out in the country, a town out there. I guess that was the county seat. And they were sentenced to one year in prison because of the sit-ins and all that. I mean, there were very harsh sentences that were given out. 
And when you're saying the sit-ins, you're talking about going to Walgreens or whatever. And just the sit-ins there are just to integrate the lunch counters that you're talking about right there. Yeah, but a lot of this there, because most of them were integrated in Chapel Hill, so mainly we were sitting in the street, and so traffic would stop, and you would just sit down in the street. See, you'd sing your songs and all that. Before that, we, we would march up and down the street, and then, you know, you'd sit down in the street. The police were very good. That was a difference, too, in Chapel Hill. They really protected us from these violent whites who were not educated people for the most part, and they would lash out at us, and it was very good to have that protection. But those were the sit-ins. They, they were just stopping traffic. That was considered very controversial, and there's a whole lot of criticism of people for stopping traffic. They said, you know, what if an ambulance comes through? One woman, a white woman, was screaming at us, and she said that her son had to go to a birthday party, and there was a party. <laughs> and we were trying to, well, we didn't talk. It was a silent vigil. We'd just sit there, and she'd be screaming, oh, we've got to get to that party. And even if it had been an ambulance, I'm sure people would have sat there and remained seated. Well, then the police would give you a warning, and that's when I and my sister, who was with me, my younger sister, we would get up and stand on the side. And the people who were willing to go to jail, they would lie down, and then they were carried, and they were put in what they called a paddy wagon. And so maybe 20 or 30 of them were hauled off in that wagon, and they were taken to jail. And this happened over and over and over again. But evidently, you didn't submit yourself for arrest. No, I kept hoping. I kept hoping. But my mother lived there. And we had three groups of us you could join. And the first group was people who could not risk an arrest. Uh, because of their job or some other reason. The second group was people who could uh, risk arrest. And then the third group, people who were willing and ready to get arrested. So I always went in the second group, and I just hoped that we would get arrested. (laughs) But we didn't. (laughs) And your mother was very much hoping something else. And she even came with us some of the time, or she was in the audience watching. She was in favor of integration, and she gave money to the people who were arrested. She would give them lots of donations. She was in the real estate business there at the time, and all the businesses there signed petitions in favor of the protesters. So you know it was a liberal city. Well, we're going to get back to that in a moment. First, I want to remind you folks that this is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find more than 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find connections to our guests. So when you want to track down Catherine Van Wormer, you can go to catherinevanwormer.com. But maybe for something more active, you want to find something about the made narratives. On Facebook, you can go to The Made Narratives, and you'll find active discussion about this book that we're visiting about today. Also on our site, you'll find a place to post comments. And we do love two-way communication, so when you come, post your comment and let us know what you're thinking. There's also, there's also a place to donate. Click the Donate button to support this because it's not the government and it's not corporations that are supporting Northern Spirit Radio 
supporting Northern Spirit Radio programs. It's by you, the listener, that this is carried forward. Even more important, though, I'd say start out by supporting your local community radio station. They give you a, a slice of news and of music that you get just absolutely nowhere else. And it's got this local flavor and a viewpoint that you will not get from mass media. So please start by supporting your local community radio stations. Again, Catherine Van Wormer is here. She's the co-author, along with two other authors, of a book called The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South. She is from New Orleans, and uh, you can find out a lot more about her history. And I want to cover that, too. I want to cover more of that still, Catherine. But first, let's take a closer look at the book. There's two main sections to the book. First, you have some historical context and situational you're, you're describing, because after all, you are professor of social work at University of Northern Iowa. Uh, your PhD is in sociology from University of Georgia. That's a very different world, I would imagine, that we live in today from what you grew up in. I think that perspective is perhaps lost on too many people. I think it probably was lost on people during this election that we just had recently that people weren't really saying when when we make America great again, we're just wondering if we're going back pre-1964, back to the segregated South, or back to where certain elements of our population are no longer equal citizens. It's certainly a concern. So I think reading the made narratives, getting the snapshots of what it's like with marginalized people, and where it's set into law, which of course segregation was. So you have first the section where you have interviews with the people who were maids or housekeeping. I know there's a lot of different terms, and there's on the movie The Help, which I've never seen. Explain the role that that movie, The Help, had in your book. Well, the book was written, we had the interviews before the movie came out, and in the middle of writing the book, the book, The Help, came out. And at first I thought, oh gosh, somebody has already come out with a book. I didn't realize it was fiction. So I got the book. Uh, it was interesting, the title, because my mother would often talk about people in the North and they didn't have any help. You know, that was the term that was used a lot, having a maid was having help. Well, then at first I wondered if the writer was really sincere, and she was too young to have been there at the time. But at the end of the book, it was very interesting. She tells about how her affection for her maid inspired her. I didn't really like the movie. The way they portrayed white people was just not the way white people were. They had evil written all over them, and it was much more complicated, much more confused than the way it comes out in any of these films. I mean, those women, I think it was supposed to be around the 1960s, early 60s, they would not have worked for those people. They were in a pretty good bargaining situation at that time because there were job opportunities for the younger black women, and they would only work for families who treated them well or they would quit, whereas, you know, you see the anyway this kind of cruelty toward them in, in the film. But how it affected me was it got people very interested in the era, and they wanted to know what it was really like working as a servant. And I think the white people who grew up with maids, who they saw as members of their family, they got to doing a whole lot of thinking, and their feelings got really strong about this. Before the film came out, I couldn't get white people to interview apart from my family and my relatives. 
because they knew where I was going with it, and they wanted to talk you know, about these women, and they wanted to really give them acknowledgement and credit for the fine women that they were, the women who worked as maids in their families. I tried my classmates at the school where I graduated from, and I got some promises, but I only got two, and one was anonymous. They just did not want to talk about having grown up with maids. I think they were ashamed, maybe, of the facts, or it would sound like bragging or something. But then when the movie came out, I went to the listserv, and this is a big listserv for social work educators, and I thought, I'm just going to put it on the listserv and see if I can find people who could be interviewed who in the South and who hired maids or you know women to work for them or if they grew up with maids working for their families. And right away, one day later, I had 10 people. And they mostly they wrote their own stories, or I called them up on the phone. One of them wanted to be anonymous, but the rest of them, they used their names. And they told what it was like. An interesting thing, it turned out several of them were from New Orleans, and several of them were from Jewish backgrounds. Their stories were very different because they knew about the injustice and those children were brought up being told, you know, this system is mistreating these black people, whereas the ones who were probably Protestant and Catholic, you know, not so much, not so much uh, awareness of the injustice of the system. We were told this is tradition, this is the way things are done, it doesn't seem right, but that's just the custom. Whereas they were told something has to be done, there's a need for change in the system. Anyway, so because of the help, I think it made people more willing to talk about things that they hadn't talked about before. And let's talk about the selection that goes on, both for the African Americans who are interviewed for the book. And again, the interviews weren't done by you for the African Americans. They're done by David Walter Jackson and Charlotta Suddoth. They did the interviews so that, in fact, there is some degree of comfort. Instead of having a white interview, a black person, it's someone who has some understanding of the race by having lived in those shoes. The black people, none of them requested to be anonymous, is my understanding. There was only one woman who, she said we could use her photograph if we were giving a talk, but she didn't want her photograph in the book, and she gave us a different name. And that was only one woman out of 50, (laughs) out of 50 black people. They were very anxious to tell their stories and how they had come up north. They had a sense of humor about things, and... They really wanted to talk, and sometimes the tape would run off, and I could see where Charlotta would have to get another tape, and the woman would say, but I haven't told you this yet. I haven't told you that. Uh, (laughs) They really enjoyed the memories, and they liked having somebody listen to them. They talked about religion, uh, the resilience that came out. There was nostalgia, too, for the communities that they had left behind the peacefulness, the respect for the elders that the children expressed, saying yes, ma'am, and no, sir. You know, you could hear that it was in their minds, you know, the good and the bad. 
So it's not exclusively an attitude, those evil employers, those mean people. There's very much a a mixture of attitudes, at the same time recognizing some of the harsh treatment and certainly the the lack of civil rights that were part of their experience. When you can't use the same bathroom, when you have to enter only by the back door, etc. So those things are highlighted throughout the interviews. But they're not, for the most part, what I would call a tone of anger. That's right. And that's what surprised some of the interviewees when they read the book. And we had a panel discussion. And so we had some of the very people we interviewed, and they're sitting on the panel. And they said, this book is about love. And I thought, love? <laughs> you know, we've got the Ku Klux Klan in there. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of very bad things that happen. But... See, they were surprised when they read about some of the close relationships between the blacks and the whites that developed despite the system. And I think you get that any place in the world when you have people of different races and religions. And they're together, in this case, every single day. These women were together. They were raising babies together. And, of course, they became fond of each other despite the system. But the ones, when they left, usually the last experience was something really negative, and it would go something like, and they told me I couldn't hang my bedspread on their clothesline because this woman didn't have a washing machine and dryer, so she had slipped in her bedspread into their washing machine, put it up on the clothesline. The man of the house was ashamed because he didn't want the neighbors to think, I guess, he had that particular bedspread. And he was screaming and yelling, you know, who put that up there? And she said she packed her suitcase up and she got on the train and she went up to Iowa and that was that. You know, so the ending was often the climax of something negative that brought them up to the north. They had to have a crisis usually at that point. Or else they would just go to visit a relative and they were told, you know, you could get paid a whole lot more if you were here. Usually it was the weather they didn't want. You know, they said, well, we don't want this climate. You know, they say, Iowa, this is terrible climate. But they'd end up staying on and staying on and staying on. And, you know, so they ended up in the north for one reason or another. Well, talk about the Great Migration and this changeover that happened. Uh, some of it happened specifically for women, like during World War II. And there's also the Great Migration where you're moving up, and there's this whole phalanx of people that moved up to Iowa, which is not what we think of as African-American territory. Yes, they came on the train. They were recruited to work in meat packing, and this was way back when before these people were, you know, even born. And they brought black people up to break a strike because the white workers were on strike. And they were working on the railroads and the trains in Waterloo, Iowa. There was quite a, you know, a lot of businesses there that were booming. So they went down south, and they just got them to get on the train and just go straight through Chicago and then go over to Waterloo and get their jobs. And so that started in Iowa. And then they kept connections with people down there in the south. And so they felt there was a settlement up in Waterloo, and then they would come up. One thing that has surprised people, a lot of them were relatives to each other. And when we're doing the interviews, we find out that this one was the aunt of this one, and this one was her cousin. 
But I think one person would, a word would spread, hey, life is much better up here, and then they would come up. Another reason was to protect the male children in the family, and this has to do with the lynchings and horrible things going on. And some of them, I went to one meeting at a museum, and it was in Waterloo, and these people were speaking, and the men in the audience were telling about their mothers. And the mother said, you're going to get killed down here. Let's go to the north. Let's go to Iowa to protect them because uh, some of them would not follow the etiquette, which was different for black men than it was for black women. And specifically that a black man can't whistle at a white woman. That's death sentence there. That's right. It had to do with that, with the control of society by the white men over the women in the South and over the black men. And there was a lot of fear that there would be something going on between the black men and the white women. And that's one reason they really revolted any talk about integrating schools when the kids were older, like a high school. But the children played together when they were young, white and black. And these stories came out over and over. Oh, yeah, they played with the whites. And I got the stories from, in my family, they played with black children growing up. But after they got to around age 12 or so, both sides pulled them away. You know, they didn't want any sexual activity going on. And so the black men really lost out. They couldn't protect the women and their families. And their lives were in danger in Mississippi and Kentucky, too, if they got into any kind of trouble or rumors about them. You can see that, of course, in the movie. Let's see. Well, you can see one, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is another one I'm thinking of. And those were based on some real cases. Of course, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is Maya Angelou's autobiography. And then the other one, even though it was fiction, it was based on a real court case of a black man who was accused of having sex with this white woman. And, and then he gets killed when he runs away. I want to get back to the self-selection of your interviewees. But there's something that was pointed out in the book that I picked up in various places throughout the book. And again, folks, the book is The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in Jim Crow South. It's this hierarchy of power and of susceptibility to power, I guess I'd call it. Maybe men are at the top of this. They have the power over women, although I see things maybe a little bit more nuanced than that. But then women have their certain amount of power within the household, and so the help for them are people they can have power over. And they generally, I get the sense from the book, and maybe this is just a subsection of what reality happened because there are people who didn't get included in the interviews because they didn't want to have their story to come out. The blacks, the African-Americans, were under the power of the whites. So this book is mostly about women who have had power over other women, white women over black women, and there's very few men in this whole story. This is really a story of women. Well, but it tells you about the men. It was meant to be just a story of women. But then they talk about, you know, the situation, like one of them describes her husband coming along and a white man's flirting with her, and she can't tell her husband the truth because she figures he'll get himself killed. So they're always there. 
in the background and it comes out. But yeah, basically this is meant to be a book of really relationships uh, between the black women and the white women. But the point is that the men, the African-American men, very frequently were out in the fields. And actually, the the young women worked in the fields at a certain point, but they got drawn into what might be seen as a privileged position inside the house. It's not quite the excruciating labor of working in the cotton fields. On the other hand, you know, you work six and a half days a week and you don't get to take care of your own children. And, you know, you can't really feed your own children because you've put in an incredibly long day taking care of the whims of these white families. So I'm not saying it's actually easy on the black women who are working as maids, but perhaps it's still preferable to being out in the cotton fields. Did you get some sense of that from the interviewees? That is a real good point. The women were carefully selected. Say they were out picking cotton, and then the white man would come, and he'd be the one they'd be working for. He'd be the landowner. He'd own their houses as well. He'd say, my wife needs somebody to help, and he'd look around for one who was smart and you know, well-groomed and so on, carefully selected one who he could trust, and then she would be the one who would go up to the big house. And so it's kind of a interesting thing because she would much rather do that any day than be out there picking cotton. That was an awful job. It was backbreaking for them. And the children, as you know from the book, they were working too. I didn't know anything about the sharecropping, only what I had read in history books. But to read about that firsthand and the cheating of the black people that went on, they weren't allowed to read the books, and the books were the ones that, where they had all the data on the cotton that was picked, and they were just given money, you know, at the end of the year, and they were told, well, you already spent it in the store, so you have very little left. So they would do that work day in and day out, and the children couldn't go to school. Then they grew up ignorant because they hadn't spent time in school. Then they were thought not to be bright because they couldn't read very well, because almost all the time, you know, four or five years old, they were out there picking cotton. So that was an awful life for them. And the ones who went and worked in the white homes, this is in Mississippi. You know, we didn't have that in New Orleans because that was a city. It was much better for them. They had time picking, shelling beans and relaxing time. It was much easier for them. But there were the humiliations that they were exposed to, and I was very interested in that. You know, which bathroom would they use? Was there a toilet for them? Could they, you know, how did they clean up? How about the cooking? You know, I wanted to know all the details about that. What did they do when company came? Which door did they come in, the back door or the front door? I mean, that was the etiquette where they could only come in the back door and they weren't supposed to use the toilet in the house. And my mother told about being out in the country. This was in Louisiana, in a meat Louisiana. And she asked her grandmother where they're going to the bathroom. And she said they're going under the house. My mother was a child then and she was just shocked. She always had a sense for right and wrong. And she thought that was just terrible. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how you go under a house, but maybe there's a basement down there. <laughs> These houses were up high, and I remember the house, and I don't know why they didn't have a lot of floods there, but it was up high, very high, because we would play under there. 
Well, let me get back to the question of self-selection. We talked about that with respect to the African-Americans who were interviewed for this. The self-selection of whites is interesting. Number one, you've already mentioned on this listserv, and you're talking about other people connected with the work. They're educated whites who, to some degree, come with a strong disapproval of what they grew up with. And you're also talking to a number of people who are relatives of yours, and yet there's a certain percentage of those who agreed to be included in the book who shared their interviews, and oftentimes they wrote their own stories, the whites did, but they wanted to remain anonymous. Talk about that division of who wants to be anonymous and who's willing to have their story shared. Well, it was only some of them who didn't want their names used. What more often happened was some people would deny they ever had maids. I was referred to people by another school I went to, and we had a reunion, and then they gave me the names of their relatives. I called up the relatives who I was told had maids, and then they denied that they had maids. I mean, that was more often what happened. Because the ones who had grown up with maids, their parents had mostly died, and so they felt relatively free, I think, to talk about them and talk about the old days. But some of them, they wanted to use their maiden names, for example. They didn't, I, I don't know, I guess they were kind of embarrassed by it. And one of the things that really struck me that it reminds me of that I didn't realize was they had to call children of a certain age, like 11 years old, they called them Miss and Mr. The maid would call the white child. You know, the maid is taking care of these children, and then she has to call them Miss and Mr. And I had a friend, and she wanted her maiden name used, I remember. And she thought it was proper. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I haven't seen her in all these years, practically. And I got in touch with her. We grew up together, at least when we were 11 and 12. And she said that they, you know, respected her, and they called her Miss and her name, and she was only six years old, living in Birmingham, Alabama. In other words, you're doing a bit of bowing and scraping to the little child who you're supposed to be, (laughs) you have some authority over, but you have to be bowing and scraping to the person you have to keep safe, keep in some ways control. Uh, And some of them were saying how spoiled they were as children, some of my friends who I interviewed, or they wrote me emails, and I just quoted them from the email. And it was, you know, they really regret today the way they acted then because they were so spoiled having a servant taking care of them all the time. So there was some self-selection, and to some degree, and you talk about this. I mean, the book's divided between stories that are shared by both the African-Americans who served as maids or various other names for that position, and there's the stories of the white folks who oversaw them. So let's put a bookend on this. I don't think you can ever have an exact bookend. But this period of the black maids and the substance that the interviews that are contained in the maid narratives, that is an institution which, by and large, no longer exists in its previous form. I mean, there's still segregation, there's still prejudice, there's still all kinds of racial hurts that are going on in this country. But can you say at a certain point that this is really the end of the maid period? Yes, except that they have Mexicans now. And I noticed one who was interviewing a former classmate. She wanted to be anonymous, I think because she was critical of her mother. And then she said, oh, well, I have a Mexican maid. 
But for the most part, they don't have servants, no. And so when did that end? You know, I'm not sure because I had left, so I couldn't tell you exactly. And in my family, this woman was very loyal, and she stayed on until she was very old. And I guess it was, uh, well, 1970s around then and there was no younger generations coming up because they would go to college i mean the opportunities were there for them and they felt stigmatized they didn't want to work for white families so i would say 1970s we are speaking by the way folks with katherine van wormer she is a professor of social work at the university of northern iowa Her Ph.D. is in sociology, and the book that came out a few years ago, The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South, there are two co-authors you should know about. They're very important in terms of having the good interviews that fill up this book. David Walter Jackson is one. He's assistant professor in the Department of African and African-American Studies in Denver, Colorado. And Charlotta Suddeth is a master of social works, works an early childhood coordinator in Waterloo, Iowa. They were very important in making this possible. And then, of course, Catherine Stewart Van Wormer. Stewart is the name she grew up when she was down in New Orleans growing up. So there's a lot more things I would like to include, but the last thing that I think we'll have time for today is to talk a little bit, Catherine, about the role of religion. You've already mentioned that a number of the African Americans got strength from their religion. You also mentioned that there's a couple Jewish families who got interviewed, a person from Jewish families who had a different perspective on having slaves than perhaps the more mainstream Christian religions. You grew up, I think, Presbyterian, and you've been Quaker for a long period. Is there a religious aspect to the more oppressive or more benevolent families who had maids? Is there some kind of religious aspect that we should be aware of in thinking about the maid narratives? I mean, you could look at the more liberal churches, the Unitarians, for example, the Quakers, strongly in the civil rights movement as white people, and the Catholics were very, very good. Their schools were integrated way before integration was mandated by law. And the Pope had something to do with that. The fundamentalist religious groups, and especially the Southern Presbyterians, the church I went to, I decided they were hypocrites as a child growing up. St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church and my family for generations had been Presbyterian. They were very proud of it. It was an all-white church, and then we had a black church that was in more or less what they call a colored neighborhood, and then people like my mother would go there and teach Sunday school, and she would work with the black minister, but it was totally segregated. And um, no black person was allowed to come in to the Presbyterian church, our church. You know, can you imagine that? As a religion, I mean, the contradiction was so great that, you know, how could you be a Christian and then you wouldn't be for all the people praying together? It just was really hard to take. And children, you know, like myself growing up, we just couldn't figure it out. We could see the contradictions in the system. Children could always see there was something wrong, but usually they get brainwashed into it. Well, what happened? We had a minister. He was rather boring, long sermons. And the church, I think... Somehow it had been dedicated to him. He was a very prominent minister. 
And one day he announced that he was moving to Texas and he was going to retire into a small church. Well, that shocked people. Well, years later, my mother found out maybe five years later, there was a board of elders there. And he had said, if a black person comes, they would have said colored person, if a colored person comes to the church, we will welcome him or her into the church. And they decided to get rid of him, and they voted him out. And when I heard about it, I was more angry at him than anyone because I felt like he should have stood up and not just gone sheepishly over there to Texas. But, I mean, that didn't speak well for the church, so I refused to, when I went to visit, go back there. And I was very glad. Well, it was after the assassination of John Kennedy. I didn't want to go to the Presbyterian Church, but my mother said we need to go to church that Sunday. And so I said, well, let's go to the Quaker church meeting. You know, I didn't know, you know what it was called exactly, but I said that is the only one I'd be willing to go to. So we went to friends' meeting, and that was the first friends' meeting I'd ever been to. Yeah, and there is a enclave of a, a certain significant population by American standards of Quakers in North Carolina. I don't think you would have had the same opportunity. There is a meeting down in New Orleans, but they're not very populous in that area, so I'm not even sure you could have grown up knowing about Quakers. In- I, yeah, I didn't know anything about them except history. I had them in a picture in my history book. <laughs> well, there <laughs> <Yeah>. it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, folks, we've been speaking with Catherine Van Wormer. She is professor of social work at University of Northern Iowa. The book is The Made Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South, co-authors David Walter Jackson and Charlotte Sudduth. When you want to follow up about that book, one place particularly to follow up is the Facebook site, The Made Narratives. So check them out there. There's comments going on still about the book. Uh, You can find out more about Catherine and the number 20-some books that she's been part of producing. CatherineVanWormer.com. Those links are both on the NortonSpiritRadio.org website. Come there and track down more about Catherine and Made Narratives and her co-authors, too. All very good workers for making this world more conscious and moving us forward because we know where we've been. So thank you so much for doing that work, Catherine, and thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. And thank you for having me. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.